0: You are listening to the Shoreline Community Church podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. Well, it is a joy to be with you, and on behalf of Barry and our whole family, we love Dwayne and Steph and the whole Smith clan. You guys are honored with people who have very, very pure hearts—the combination of humility and authority. Don't always walk together, do they? But they do in this family. So thank you guys so much for loving us over the years. Jesus interrupted my atheistic existence just weeks before I was beginning my university studies. He interrupted it with an experience that was so incredibly tangible that I would have had to have committed intellectual and emotional suicide to deny his existence. The year was 1983, and perhaps someday I'll have the opportunity to share more of that story with you. But in that time, every church that I went to, I would hear a song over and over and over again, and some of you may remember it or recall it. It was based on Psalm 42, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longeth after thee, because that's how Jesus spoke, right? (laughs) It was a gorgeous song. And for me, every time I heard the song, my heart felt like it had wings. When I read the entire psalm, to me at that time, it meant that I loved him and I wanted to love him more. That he loved me and I wanted to experience it more fully. That I felt full, but that I wanted to be overflowing And God is merciful. He does something quite well that we often do quite poorly. He hears our words through the window of our hearts. And he accepted my worship. Later on, it would actually be many, many, many more years before I took a bit of a closer look at Psalm 42 and would realize that panting isn't pretty, is it? That panting isn't fun at all, that panting is actually the visible manifestation, not of abundance, but of lack. Panting is the visible manifestation, not of something that's overflowing, but of something that we need. In fact, the entire psalm is quite arresting. The son of Korah who penned it He spoke of his life or the life perhaps of the king and he described it in this way. He said he was spiritually parched, that his satisfaction was delayed, that his thirst was unquenched. He was experiencing what we would call a dark night of the senses. Everywhere he looked, it seemed as though God were absent. Tears were his food. He said he was pouring out his soul. He felt a gap in the protection of God. He felt forgotten by God. He was mourning. He was oppressed by the enemy. He was enduring physical pain. He spoke twice of being taunted by foes who appear to be religious. He described his soul as disturbed twice and three times. He spoke of his soul as downcast. This entire psalm isn't about being spiritually satisfied, It's about being spiritually dissatisfied. It's not about sensory saturation. It's about sensory deprivation. This psalm is about spiritual pain. And over the years since, over the decades, the writings that I've had the joy of reading, the scriptures that I've had the joy of studying, it seems to me that there's a pattern that if you truly long for spiritual growth, if you truly long to love God more deeply than at some times and perhaps repeatedly throughout your journey, you will be gifted with the opportunity to befriend spiritual pain. Now, no one seeks it, do they? <laughs> No one signs up for it, no one searches for it But when it comes, I hope that by the end of our morning together You will experience encouragement Because pain is not senseless Spiritual pain is actually under assignment Spiritual pain does at least three things it reconnects us with reality And by reality I mean the global human condition Which sometimes, though not always We in, in comparison with the planet In our somewhat privileged society We have a tendency to think that faith means we get an exemption From some of the pain that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world Face on a daily basis Spiritual pain reconnects us with reality. Spiritual pain offers to mentor us in grieving. And grieving is a discipline in which our head and our heart have to work together. And that is indeed a gift. Another thing that spiritual pain does is it exercises our will, which may be among the weakest muscles Of our generation this morning I would like to invite you to join me in considering what may initially feel like an uncomfortable subject but I think it'll be a very familiar subject in our souls the subject of spiritual pain in a word I'm going to be speaking about disillusionment spiritual disillusionment so let me give you a little bit of background before I begin I grew up in a family where asking questions was considered an art form. My parents tease me that the very first word that ever came out of my mouth wasn't ma or da. They say it was why. So, evidently, I've been asking questions since I could speak. And one of the greatest discoveries for me when Jesus interrupted my life was that he took delight in sincere questions. So among the first studies I did as a new follower of Jesus was in 1994, and I began studying all of the conflicts throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. I chronicled every conflict between mankind, humankind, and God with one another, and also internally, internal conflicts. In 1997, I layered over that study a specific focus of disillusionment in the life of the disciples in a study throughout the Gospels. And then when I was doing my doctoral studies, I focused my dissertation on disillusionment as the unexpected friend of spiritual formation. So if you would like to read a little bit more of an academic form of what I'm speaking about this morning, you can just Google my name and dissertation and George Fox and have a blast with that paper. (laughs) And so I'm going to be sharing from some decades of thought and study. And since I'm not going to be going verse by verse through a passage, I'm going to give you a little bit of a map. We're going to begin by looking at the concept of disillusionment and expending a little bit of energy, wrapping our minds and wrapping our lives around that concept. Then we're going to focus specifically on disillusionment with God. And I'm going to share three ways in which it seems that the disciples were regularly disillusioned with Jesus. And then finally, I'm going to offer you seven different thoughts I have, seven different encouragements for when you find yourself disillusioned with God. So let's begin with a focus on the word disillusionment. Merriam-Webster defines disillusionment as to disenchant, especially to disappoint or embitter by leaving without illusions. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but allow me to layer some true story to help us begin wrapping our thoughts around the concept of disillusionment. A long, long time ago, I knew of a friend's friend. I actually watched this story from a distance. But she had an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed everything. Oh, she was so entirely captivated by the love, by the clarity of thought, by the creativity of Jesus, and she became a part of a community in her home state. She also became dear friends with a Bible study leader who was very, very connected to the leadership in that city. So, a young follower of Jesus began to grow and grow. And as she began to grow, she noticed that her Bible study leader started growing in the opposite direction. And she was so confused, she was so baffled. Eventually, her Bible study leader friend said, I've got to tell somebody what's going on. I just can't keep it a secret any longer. And the Bible study leader shared with this young Christian that she was actually having an affair with a married man, which of course for the young woman was painful, but the next words just caused her breath to stop. The Bible study leader confessed that the affair she was having was with one of the primary spiritual leaders of that city. Have you ever been disillusioned? Have you ever been disillusioned disillusioned, blindsided, almost taken out by spiritual pain that you didn't even see coming. That's the first story. Allow me to share an unrelated second story. I know of a couple who fell in love in college, deeply in love with each other, deeply in love with their God, and they felt a call to prepare to be available for some kind of service or ministry. And a few days after celebrating Christmas with their family, they were headed back down to seminary. And they hit a patch of black ice. And as their car spun out of control, it collided with another car also spinning out of control. And this dear man, his beautiful, beautiful wife, died Instantly in that collision, have you ever been disillusioned? Has God ever not been who you thought He was? Have you ever not been who you hoped you were? Have the people of God ever not been who you needed them to be? Have you ever been disillusioned? In the English language, the very first known occurrence of the word disillusion was in 1598. It was actually a translation from a Spanish novel. The next known occurrence of the word is 250 years later in a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Even today, I did a search of over 40 different English translations of the Bible. Not once does the word show up in the New Testament, and only a couple of times in the Old. The word disillusion is something that's a little hard to get our hands around, isn't it? It's not a very common word, and yet it is a common experience, though we might have trouble defining it. We haven't had trouble feeling it, have we? And perhaps some of us, even beyond feeling it, have actually feared it. So let's break the word down just technically. It comes from a prefix, dis, which means removal or negation. A noun, illusion, which is a false idea or ideal. And then the suffix, meant, the act of. So what is disillusionment? Technically, it is the act of removing or negating false ideas, a friend of mine, Joe Sycophus, he defined disillusionment as the dissing of illusions. And that's really what it's about, isn't it? You are losing illusions, but disillusionment isn't all loss. Because anytime you lose an illusion, you gain a reality, don't you? To lose an illusion about someone is to gain a reality. So my personal definition of disillusionment is the painful gaining of reality. And I suggest to you, and this is actually the heartbeat of my entire dissertation if you happen to ever read it, is that disillusionment is an unexpected friend because reality is a friend of nearness with God. If God were a fairy tale, illusions would be a friend. But he is the ultimate reality. So the more you and I can connect with what is real, the greater our capacity to walk with the one who is the ultimate real, to walk with God. Now when I've thought over the years of the three different types of relationships we often experience disillusionment with, our relationship with God, relationship with one another, and that mysterious relationship we have with ourself, with our own faith. It seems to me that all three of these different types of relationships share in common a cycle, and I'd like to attempt to illustrate that. Now, any type of illustration is just a glimpse at a greater truth, and so this will be overly simplistic on many levels, but I still hope it might be helpful. When I think about our relationship with God, with one another, and with our own faith. It seems to me that it shares a cycle that begins with a substance we'll call delight. You could also call it infatuation. And that is when two souls meet one another and their stars in their eyes, yes. That's when someone who knows they're lost is found by a good and forgiving God and all of a sudden all the world is beautiful. This is when your dearest friend comes to you and says, I have an idea, why don't we go into business together? I mean, what in the world could be better than working with your best friend? (laughs) This is when you've been longing for a mentor, and there she is. You've been watching her from a distance for so long, you're quite confident she walks on water, cannot wait to be influenced by her. Well, for those who have been in mentoring relationships with me, and there's a couple in this room, <laughs> the next stage in the cycle of relationship begins about 7.4 seconds after the first, and that is what we'll call disillusionment, the loss of illusions. That's when you find out that that person whom you thought walked on water, friends, they can't even chew gum and walk, right? Somebody you admired from a distance, you get up close and you find out that they're just as human as you are. That's when you go into business with your buddy and you find out that working alongside of him was absolutely nothing like playing ball with him in college, correct? That's when a couple gets married and then they wake up. And they realize that they grew up with rather different definition of rather key concepts like quality time and financial management and intimacy. And that's when new believer, new follower of Jesus doesn't feel God's presence in worship anymore or doesn't have their prayers answered within 24 hours or later on has been fasting and praying, but the biopsy still shows malignancy, or a close friend commits suicide. Or people who are your advocates start acting like your adversaries. Friends somehow, overnight, become foes. It's when one spouse turns to another and says, I don't love you, and I'm really not sure I ever did. It's when college students come home And realize that their parents' marriage wasn't what they thought it was all these years. Or when parents go into their student's room, their child's room, and they find a dusty Bible and a used syringe. It's when you're surrounded by people, but you feel so desperately alone. It's when you've been reading the scriptures over and over. Just trying to saturate your mind. And yet you can feel it, can't you? It just feels as though something is slipping into darkness. This, my friends, is real life. This is real pain. And this is a real challenge because we are greatly influenced by a culture that does not teach us how to press past this point in life. Now I'm talking about spiritual disillusionment. And we live in a culture that mistakenly calls delight love. Yes? We live in a culture that mistakenly defines disillusionment as failure. And so what do you do when love fails? Well, it's pretty clear, right? When love fails, you bail. When love fails, you bail. And you can see us trapped in this, can't you? job after job after job after relationship after relationship church after church after church community after community God after God after God and we continue this search for a love that's somehow easy we continue this search for a love that never stings we continue this Search, And so we stumble into more infatuation And we stumble into more disillusionment And we bail over and over But if, if we are going to be generations That make a difference For the people we can't see yet If we are going to be a generation that leaves a legacy For those who can't yet say thank you We are going to have to find the strength together to be committed past the painful gaining of reality about God, about one another, and about ourselves. And live in a place that Jesus demonstrated so well, a place that I think he called love. And I want us to notice that love is not a feeling. I'd like you to think of love as a muscle. And muscles don't always feel good, do they? Love, as exemplified by Jesus Christ, wasn't diluted by disappointment. Love, as exemplified by Jesus, wasn't intimidated by pain. It lived in the midst of, not even in spite of, real, raw life. And this cycle itself is renewed as we Over and over again Keep stumbling into more illusions that we have And continue to press past them To live in a place called love And so this is my encouragement for us this morning In that cycle where we head up towards love Bring your questions with you Bring your angst with you Bring the unresolved with you He's big enough. Over the years, I've come to the conclusion that God is rather secure, and so what he invites us into is a world-changing word that we would call commitment. Commitment is the state of being bound emotionally or intellectually to an ideal or a course of action, and being bound. God works best when we delete all of the empty spaces between us and we live life leaning on him. We live life leaning on him. And leaning on God, the kind of commitment he can help us Experience and live and apply. That kind of commitment can go the distance. That kind of commitment can go the distance when we're disillusioned with God. When in the beginning we sang those simple songs, Do you remember Jesus loves me? This I know. I would sing, but it wouldn't bless you. (laughs) Jesus loves me. This I know. And then we experience a disillusionment with God. Maybe our health fails or our plans die or a loved one leaves. And we start losing illusions about God. We realize that He is personal, but He is not pliable. That God is gracious, but He's not lawless. He's a friend, but He's not a peer. He's loving, but not remotely spineless. He is near us, but He is not us. And we lose those illusions, and we gain those realities. And on the other side, we pray prayers like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, let this cup pass. I'd really rather not drink this cup. Yet, not my will, let your will be done. Leaning on God, commitment can go the distance when we're disillusioned with God. It can go the distance when we're disillusioned with ourselves. When on one side, we make those declarations like Peter did, I love you so much, God, I would die for you, and then we stumble on our own humanity, and we're shocked by what we do when we're afraid, and we're stunned by the power sin still seems to have, and on the other side, in humility, after we've lost some illusions about ourself being able to say, it is by grace and grace alone that I stand. And leaning upon God, commitment with God can go the distance when we're disillusioned with one another. When on the one side from a distance we said, what a man of God, what a woman of God. And then we stumble in disillusionment through the shadow of one another's humanity and sins and the reality that transformation just takes time, being able to, on the other side, say, you know what, I'm deeply committed to that human. Leaning on God, commitment can go the distance. And being able to go that distance, thankfully, isn't a feat reserved for spiritual Olympians It's simply a sign that our faith is continuing to grow up. Disillusionment, spiritual disillusionment. I want you to keep this image in your mind and I'd like to share with you three different ways in which I saw that the disciples were regularly disillusioned with Jesus. What I did is I just chronicled each time and then attempted to categorize them. So first, it seems that the disciples were regularly disillusioned with God. They were regularly disillusioned with Jesus, specifically with Jesus's timing. Have you ever been disillusioned with God's timing So we see things, like in Luke chapter 7, Jesus comes upon a funeral procession, and he raises a son to life. Now, we have no indication whatsoever that had he had any relationship with either the mother or the son, as far as we can tell, they were complete strangers, but Jesus takes mercy on them both. He raises the son to life, restores him to his mother, and that's amazing, And incredible, but a little confusing when you place it side by side with another experience in John chapter 11 when someone Jesus did know, someone Jesus did love, someone who had served Jesus, Lazarus, was dying. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus. And they say, hey Jesus, Lazarus, the one that you love, the one that you know, uh, the one that serves you, he's dying. Q, this is your moment. Come on, Jesus, come and do something for the one that you love, and scripture tells us that he stayed put. In fact, by the time he arrives in John chapter 11, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, and you can hear a disillusionment writing on the voice of both Martha and Mary as they come to Jesus and both of them say the same thing one after another they say if you had been here my brother wouldn't have died has that cry ever been in your heart god if you had been here i'm sorry where where exactly were you when the drunk driver was entering the intersection When that child was vulnerable, when that conflict took its first breath, I'm sorry, Jesus, where were you? This is the cry of a disillusioned heart, disillusioned with his timing. Another of the many examples of disillusionment with Jesus' timing. We find when the disciples were in the boat, and you may remember the story a storm comes up, and Jesus is sleeping. The guys are afraid they're about to drown. And they turn to Jesus and they say, Don't you care? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? If you had been here, don't you care? Got up drowning? I'm drowning. These are the cries of disillusioned hearts. And it's so beautiful to see how Jesus responds to each and every one of them, isn't it? He doesn't say, shh, you're not supposed to say things like that. He grieves with them, he cries with them, he speaks words of peace. Now, there are many, many different reasons why God's timing is no doubt a mystery to us, most of which I couldn't comprehend, let alone attempt to communicate, but I'd like to attempt one. Different points of reference produce different perspectives about the same set of facts, correct? So, for example, my family was on the border of Mexico and South Texas, My husband's family was on the border of Canada in North Dakota. Very different points of reference on a whole wide variety of levels. Different points of reference. I'm going to give you one set of facts. It's April and it's 65 degrees. Different points of reference produce different perspectives about the same set of facts. April, 65, border of Mexico and Texas. What is my family doing? Freezing. Absolutely, we've got the heat on, multiple blankets and quilts. April, 65 degrees, Barry's family, border of Canada. What are they doing? Yes. (laughs) They think it's summer. Different points of reference produce different perspectives about the same set of facts. Now, you and I have a different point of reference than God does about time, don't we? Our point of reference about time is now, right here. Right now I have need. Right now I have pain. Right now I need an answer. God's point of reference includes today, but it can never be contained by today. God's point of reference is eternity. And in that gap, sometimes it feels as though his timing misses us. But on the other side, I think we'll see that it never does. And we'll be able to ask Lazarus about that. They were regularly disillusioned with his timing, regularly disillusioned with Jesus' words. (laughs) Whenever I read through the Gospels, it seems to me that around every other paragraph, the guys are kind of looking at each other and saying, what did he say? Did you get that? So they'd nod when they were in groups, And privately, they'd go to Jesus and say, could you expand on that seed and sower bit, especially the second one? I just completely lost you. To me, one of the funniest moments in the Gospels is in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus has just had a severe conflict with some of the religious leaders. He's called down Isaiah 29 on them, (laughs) called them hypocrites. It just wasn't pretty. And the disciples come to him afterwards, and they said, not sure you picked up on this, Jesus, but... Did you know that you just offended people? Did you? You just offend Jesus, you're kind of, I don't mean to be rude, but sort of narrow. And, um, oops, <laughs> some of your words come off as a bit elitist. We're, guys and I, we're getting together. We're thinking about starting a PR campaign to help your <laughs> image. And today we read the Bible and Jesus saying the same thing. He says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we think, oh, that tiny article adjective if we could just switch out the for a, we'd get along a whole lot better. But sometimes Jesus' words offend us because he's more concerned with truth than diplomacy. People were offended at times by the things that he said and the things that he did and the people he hung out with. The disciples were disillusioned with his words, disillusioned with his timing, and if I had to clump all the remaining occurrences together, they were just disillusioned with his ways. This is the God who welcomes children and offends Pharisees. Jesus speaks tenderly to adulteresses, but he publicly humiliates people who think they're righteous. He exercises authority over all the elements, yet he lets himself get killed. Have you ever been disillusioned with God? Has he ever not been who you thought he was? Maybe not valued what you valued or worked on your timetable? Has he ever publicly corrected you? Does he hang out with people who you may not be so sure he should? Has it ever seemed to you like it did to the disciples in one of the darkest days of their life that God just died? have you ever turned around the corner thinking that an answer to prayer was there and it was another empty street? If you've ever been disillusioned with God, then I would like to offer you some encouragements. And if you haven't been disillusioned with God, that is okay. (laughs) Just hold these perhaps for someone else. Seven encouragements if you've ever been disillusioned with God. And the reason I'm going to offer these encouragements isn't for a checklist. Please don't do that. Just as I'm sharing, if any of these stand out to you in bold, take note of them. The reason I'm sharing this is because our futures are going to be forged more by what we do with pain than by what we do with joy. So if you know spiritual pain, some encouragements for you this morning. First, you're in really good company. If you've ever been disillusioned, you're in really good company. Think of Elijah and the cave. Think of the book of Job and his loss, Paul and his thorns, the disciples and the crucifixion. Think of the saints of old and every book I have ever read that I wanted to read more than once was written by someone who would say they were familiar in some way with the dark night of the soul or a dark night of the senses. You're in really good company. Abraham said... In Genesis eighteen twenty-three, of God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Moses said, Relent, O God, how long will it be? When will you have compassion on your servants? King David, Psalm thirteen, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and every day have sorrow in my heart? I love this, Jeremiah twelve: one. Your righteous Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Patriarchs, prophets, Kings, leaders, have all had questions they asked of God. You're in good company. Second encouragement, God isn't nervous that you're disillusioned. He's not pacing heaven wondering what on earth he's going to do with you now that you have unanswered questions. As I said before, I think he delights in sincere questions. I really think he enjoys when we're honest and open with him. Sincere questions, friends, aren't the enemy. I suggest they're far less lethal than denied doubt. One brief glance at the Psalms of David shows us a leader who threw raw, unedited emotion on the table before God, a man who was called a man after God's own heart. He's not nervous. Another thought. Steward the space. And what I mean by steward the space is in that season where you're experiencing disillusionment, you need to attend to your soul. You need to sleep well. You need to eat well. You need to take care of the gift of life that God has given you. Because that space, that pain, as I said before, is under assignment. Don't stuff your life with distractions. Please don't try to outrun or outgun the questions that you're facing. Let them sit in God's presence and make sure you take care of yourself so you have the strength to deal with them well. Another encouragement if you're experiencing spiritual pain, immerse your mind in the Word of God. And if you're like me when you're disillusioned, that may not be your first (laughs) go-to. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I feel disillusioned, I open up the Bible and the words seem to bounce off of my mind like a ball off of a wall. Yes. When I was an atheist, Christians felt compelled to give me little Bibles. They just felt compelled. I had stacks of Bibles, And every once in a while, when I was bored to tears with whatever reading material I had, I would open up that Bible, and to me, the words seemed thinner than the paper they were written on. But when Jesus interrupted my life, oh, the thing I thirsted for was the Bible. And when I opened it up, oh, it wasn't a book. This was a voice. I just couldn't hear enough of it. May I suggest that we use things that are dead And we relate to things that are living So you can use the chair you're sitting on But it's not going to go well If you try to use the person you're sitting next to Right? We use things that are dead We relate to things that are living So do you use this? Or do you relate to it? It might depend on whether you think it's dead or alive Sometimes, in times of disillusionment, as I said, the word seems to bounce off of our mind like a ball off a wall. We may even feel like a hypocrite. Like, I'm just going through the motions. I'm just doing this because my parents told me to, or I know I'm supposed to, or someone's going to ask me if I did. When we feel nothing and we continue to expose ourselves to the word of God because it's living and not dead, that choice isn't hypocrisy, it's faith. It's faith. Are you disillusioned? It's okay. But continue to immerse your mind in this word. Because when we're disillusioned, we're more vulnerable to deception. And the word of God shines a light on deception. Another thought. I encourage you, if you're experiencing spiritual pain, to accept the fact that knowledge alone isn't going to connect all the dots it's not going to connect all the dots. I had a friend once confront me and say, Alicia, you don't walk by faith. I said, well, that's not a very nice thing to say. What do you think I walk by? And he said, you walk by understanding. I was so frustrated that I left off in a huff, but someone had told me that when someone you respect says something you don't like, you need to take their words into God's presence and ask the Holy Spirit to blow on them. So that's what I did. I went to the chapel and I took those words, I put them on the altar, and I said, blow, wind, blow. And the whole entire correction was still sitting there when the wind died down. And I felt God affirming. He was right, Alicia. You don't walk by faith, you do walk by understanding. You know when you have faith, Alicia? You have faith after you've worked it and worked it and worked it and worked it. And then at three in the morning, you have your aha. Oh, then you're a woman of great faith. (laughs) And until then, you're just someone in desperate search for answers. I do hope that the dots connect for you. I do. But they're probably not going to spell exit. It's going to take more than good thinking to find our way through disillusionment. And another thought. I encourage you in the midst of spiritual pain to activate compassion. Spiritual pain sensitizes you to all other kinds of pain, doesn't it? And it will be a lifeline for your sanity if you dig deep into that pain to make a difference for somebody else's. A lifeline for your sanity, however small you may think it is. Bring groceries to someone. Sit with someone who's been forgotten. Do something to make a difference in someone else's pain when you're struggling. And a final thought. I encourage you, to plot on. Now, plot on is a phrase that I'm borrowing from William Carey. He was born in 1761. He's called the father of modern missions. And back in that day, he was doing some pretty extraordinary things to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, William Carey would lose two wives on the mission field. The first one had a a breakdown from just the chaos of of adjusting to a different place for her that she never recovered from. One of his children also died. It took seven years before he saw one person take a step toward Jesus. Try to write a letter on that seven years. But also later on in his life, and I've never been able to determine the exact date, he had this, I don't know, warehouse filled with irreplaceable hand-done manuscripts translations, all by hand, decades of life work. If something happened, there was a fire, the whole thing went up in smoke, burned to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that I might have been tempted to show up and survey the damage and say something like, well, all right then. (laughs) If, uh, If you didn't care enough to keep the flames away, I hope you're not expecting me to care enough to start again. But I'm not William Carey. William Carey surveyed the damage. He picked up a pen and he started all over again. At the end of his life, he said something like this: "He said, if anybody ever would want to write a biography about me, give, have them give me credit for one thing—being a plotter." He said, "Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod." I can persevere in any definite pursuit to this everything I owe. Disillusioned, it's okay. He's not nervous. You're in good company. Immerse yourself in the word and keep going. So allow me to finish the two unrelated stories I began with. Do you remember the young woman who gave her life to Christ? and her bible study leader had an affair with a spiritual leader in that community she was so devastated everybody in that community was and she couldn't find her way through it i heard about her i think the last maybe it was 10 years ago now and the last thing i heard she was living out east she's an incredibly successful professional a lawyer i believe and she's an adamant atheist choices we make in the place of pain matter, don't they? And how about that couple, that beautiful couple again, unrelated, but the couple and the man's wife died in that car accident. He said later on, he became a dear, dear, dear friend. He said that it felt like he had died too. And some of you know what that feels like, to have someone near you and you feel like you were buried when they passed He said the first two years were just so, so difficult. But he made a choice, and we all have to. Whenever we come to life-size pain points like that, we can choose to hold the pain in our hand and say, God, this was lousy. And an all-powerful God could have prevented this. But you didn't. And because you didn't, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to take my pain, and I'm going to walk away. But there is a second option that's open to every single one of us in the place of pain, and that's where we take the pain in our hands, and we say, God, this was lousy, and surely an all-powerful God could have prevented this, but where else can I go but to you? And instead of taking the pain and walking away, we can do what this amazing man did. He took the pain and he walked toward God. In fact, he pressed the pain into the heart of God. And when you and I walk toward him and press the pain into him, he does something extraordinary. He wraps his hands that are so gentle and so strong around all that pain, and he begins to forge that pain into a substance our world desperately needs, a substance called character. This man, after he lost his wife in that car accident, he pressed the pain into God. And the last I heard of him was about 30 minutes ago when he sent me out the door. Um, that man, his name is Barry J. Sholey His first wife died in a car accident in 1982. And seven years later, we met, and Barry's my amazing husband. So can I ask you, where would I be if he hadn't plotted on? He has been my mentor. Where would our children be if he hadn't plotted on and continued to press the pain into God? We have no idea, friends, What's on the other side of our pain? You have no idea what generations, what countries, what cities, who is on the other side of your pain. Where would we be if the prophets had stopped speaking because no one seemed to be listening? Where would we be if Paul had stopped writing because of all the conflict and all the drama in the church? Where would we be if the person who showed you Jesus had given up earlier because of that diagnosis or because their stock dropped? We have no idea what waits for us on the other side. So this morning, I'm going to invite you into one simple response, simple to say, not simple to live, My goal in sharing this has not been to be able to wave something over your disillusionment and watch it go poof. (laughs) There's no tidy bow here. There's no easy answer. But there is an invitation. Whatever the pain, will you face him with it? The one hope in my heart today is that there would be some And you're aware of the pain, but you've been starting to turn your back towards God with it. One request, turn toward him. Turn toward him with the pain. Live it looking into his eyes as Martha did, as Mary did. And we will see what he always faithfully does. Whether we feel it or not, he wraps his strong arms around us and he will carry us through. I invite you into a moment of silence while you consider if there is a pain that you need to turn to God with. And then as Pastor Duane comes, I will simply close by reading two brief paragraphs in a book I wrote a while back. When our ways are not God's ways, though it may be unspeakably uncomfortable, we must wrestle with the discrepancy between what we think God should do and what he actually does and allow that struggle to edit our tidy but tame image of God. If we wrestle with these questions with the lamp of God's word by our side, an increasingly accurate portrait of God will emerge from our faith struggle. A portrait that's strong enough to trust in, good enough to wait for, and wild enough to never be contained in a box. May the peace of God be with you.